Hello, and welcome to season two of We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. She was the first person in the family to go to college and she was supposed to marry a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And what she did instead was bring home a black man who was a welder. It's very easy to have an opinion and loads of people have gotten opinions, but how do we bridge those gaps? That's what interests me at the moment. And Oprah Winfrey was somebody who did that for decades. I still don't suffer fools gladly, actually. My close friends say to me, they say to me, oh, you don't suffer fools gladly. And I think, well, why should I? Why would anybody want to suffer a fool gladly? <laughs> My guest today is the Booker-winning author, Bernadine Evaristo. It took 20 years and many genre-defying books for Bernie to become the success we know today. Since winning the Booker, her books have been translated into over 60 languages. She continues to use her platform to raise up other writers and promote diversity in publishing. Her memoir, Manifesto, is out now in paperback. On today's podcast, she talks about some of the people who've inspired and continue to inspire her. And being Bernie, she also asks about my forthcoming memoir. As she says of one of her own heroes, Bernadine Evaristo is a force for good. Thank you so much, Bernie, for agreeing to take part in this podcast. You are my dream guest. Thank you. <laughs> Looking forward to it. I'm so excited to have you on. As I'm sure you're aware, this is a podcast about people's heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them. So who is the first person that you'd like to talk about and why have you chosen them? Um, I think I'll start with a personal person, and that's my mother, who is still alive. She's 89 years old. And she grew up in southeast London in a place called Abbey Wood. And she was the only child of my grandmother, who was a dressmaker, and my grandfather, who was a milkman. And they put all their dreams into my mother. They wanted her to have a better life than the their own experiences. And what happened was, when she was at teacher's training college, she met my dad, who uh, was a black African man from Nigeria and eventually went home to her parents and said she was going to marry him. And this was in the early 1950s. And, uh, <laughs> and their world came, well, my grandmother's world came tumbling down because it was just the worst thing that my mother could have said to her because the whole idea was that she would move up a class. So my grandmother came from a working class background, immigrant actually, Irish, and my grandfather also came from a part immigrant background, uh, German. His, his grandfather was German. But the whole idea, and it was especially, well, I, I don't know if it's so much the case today, because I think more people are middle class than they were years ago. But years ago, if, if you came from a working class family, then you were likely to be incredibly poor. You were likely to suffer incredible hardships. 
And so it made sense for people to want to um, better themselves, as they would say, and move up a class. So my mother was supposed to, she was, she was at college, so she was the first person in the family to go to college. And she was supposed to marry a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And what she did instead was bring home a black man who was a welder. And everybody in my, on my mother's side of the family objected to the marriage. But she held fast and she married him because she loved him. And then she went and had eight children with him in 10 years, which of course was also frowned upon. Because at that stage in the 1950s, people were really having two or three kids at most. But she had eight of us and that was a lot. So I really admire her for standing by her principles, for not letting her racist family stop her marrying the man she loved simply because he was a black man and um, for carving her own path through life as the mother of um, so many black children and also married to a black man. She must have been extremely brave at that time because if you're going up against your family and society of that period. Yeah, I think she was incredibly brave, but she's very modest, unassuming person. And she would say that she wasn't brave. She really? was, yeah, she would. She, yeah, she, she was a Catholic, but she was a true Catholic. So, you know, she really did believe that all people are born equal and love thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, she, she was a, a literal believer in much of the Catholic faith. And so she just did what she felt was the right thing to do. And also, I suppose sometimes when we think of people as brave, especially when it's a personal situation, maybe they're also simply doing what they have to do in the sense that if you believe in something really passionately and you know that your life is not going to be fulfilled unless you do that thing, then, then you will do it. That's different, I think, to, say, being brave when you're on the battlefield. And, you know, that's, that takes a different kind of bravery. But in my mum's case, she just definitely followed her heart. I know it sounds like a cliche, but she followed her heart. And so she would never say that she was a brave person. At what age did you become aware of this background and the story behind her marriage and the challenges she'd faced? It's, it's hard to know when it happened because I think it feels like it was always there because that was, my mum was quite a good storyteller my dad wasn't, but she was a good storyteller and she was, she would tell us it, you know, it was, it, it would be one of the stories that she would tell us about her past. And so we would be shocked and horrified and angered by this. And also there was, there were members of the family who had nothing to do with us because my mother married my father. So, so there, they were sort of evidence of this bigotry in a sense, because we had been shunned and cut off by, by members of the family. So, yeah, I think it was always there. And then eventually I did write about it in my book, Lara. That was the starting point for that book, actually, because I wanted to look at what it was like for my parents to marry at that time when it was such a taboo. I was going to ask you what you think you've learned from her, but when you said she was a great storyteller, <laughs> that's one thing you've learned from her. And she would also say she's not a good storyteller. <laughs> she's very self-deprecatory and very modest, she would not say she's a good storyteller, but you know, I'm the kind of person with my friends, for example, if they ask me something and they want to get me to get to the heart of what I've got to tell them, I will build a picture. I will start at the beginning and they're like, well, yeah, but what happened, what happened? Come on, let's just get to the story. And I'll, I'll be like, no, 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 you need to know what happened before the thing that happened happened. And I think my mother's the same. 
you know, but she would not see that as storytelling. I, I consider her to be a good storyteller, but she wouldn't see it as that. In your memoir, which I absolutely love, you talk a lot about your, at the beginning, you talk about your family background and your childhood and the dynamics. And one of the things that comes through very strongly is that you have an absolute sure sense of your purpose and your, your goals in life. Did that come from her, do you think? No, <laughs> I don't think it did. Where did that come from? I think what came from my parents was the quality of self-determination. Doing what you wanted to do, irrespective of what society thought about it or thinks about it. I've always, I have had a, a very strong sense. I think I've always had a strong sense of myself and I've always followed the path that I wanted to follow. I mean, maybe I'm being unfair to my parents or my mother, but I don't really feel that they, they taught me that. But maybe I actually, maybe I did learn it from them. Maybe I just, you know, you pick up things as a child, don't you, from your parents. Some people are incredibly fearful, for example, and they, they never dare do anything that goes against the grain. They have to lead a conventional life because they're scared to do otherwise and they suppress their, you know, some of the passions that are stirring inside them. Whereas I've always been, I think, quite self-expressed in that sense where I feel that I just do what I want to do. I have a bloody-minded streak, which I definitely picked up from them. A lot of the bloody-mindedness that I have definitely came from my mum. I didn't realise quite how much until she's got older and frailer that I realised what a force of nature she was and had to be. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, we have our childhoods and we have our relationships with our parents but often we're never able to stand back and look at them, try and look at the relationship or them objectively, you know, because yeah. when you grow up with, say you grew up with your mother, the whole of your childhood, I assume, you're so enmeshed with her that it's very hard to separate yourself. And I think yeah. sometimes our feelings about our parents, if we're, if we're not, if we don't really mature, then those feelings that we had as children stay with us for the rest of our lives rather than standing back and reinterpreting them and also the childhood that we've had. So I know that you've also written a memoir. I can't wait to read it. So you've been doing some of that in self-interrogation, haven't you? About yeah, You start writing much. about your family in a non-fiction sense. So it's the, it's the truth as you know it. And you will see things that you didn't really notice before. Sorry, I know this is about me, but I'd like, I'm really interested in your mother. Tell me something about your mum, about her bravery. Growing up, my mum always told us, whenever we asked about her, that her mother was dead. This wasn't true. Her, her mother had abandoned her as a child and she carried this shame. And so it wasn't until I was in my 30s, maybe, or maybe even early 40s, that she actually told me the, the true story. She'd come down from Scotland, down to Wales to train to be a nurse. Her father was in the Merchant Navy. He was away at sea all the time. So he was a person I'd saw once a year. And I didn't realise at the time just how strong she had to be. I was always at loggerheads with her. You know, as a teenager, I was always at loggerheads with her. But it's only lately that I've really appreciated just how like her I am. <laughs> you know, we're so similar. That's so interesting. So there is a... A lot, so two branches of the family that aren't really known to you. What inner strength she needed to survive that, to yeah. have that sort of childhood where you were being taken, you know, shunted from one relative to the next and rejected by your mother. That's, that's just so sad, isn't it? 
she was always obsessed when we were young about what the neighbors thought about things. When I started realizing who I was and showing that without actually saying it, but I was declaring it to my visual presentation as a teenager, <laughs> she couldn't bear it because she worried about what other people would think. Not what she thought, but what other people would think. Yeah. And this was a recurring theme all the way through my coming out and becoming a public person and being an activist and being in the newspapers. And it was always what other people would think. And then suddenly there was a point at which she just stopped caring. I don't know what happened, but suddenly she just stopped caring about what other people thought. And when I look at photographs of her from that time, the town I grew up in is a very, very, very white town. I was friends with the only black kid in my school. And my mum, because she was trained as a nurse, met people from all different backgrounds. And one of the earliest photos I have of her is her on the street where she still lives with the black woman in about 1960. Socially, the way that she lived, it was actually very brave at the time in that little small white town. Yeah. And also she would have, you know, she would have felt rejected. And so that gave her empathy, perhaps, towards people yeah. who were also being rejected. It's interesting, the whole... The need to be conventional in small towns, in suburbia, in society is something that just crushes people, isn't it? Because the same with my grandmother. She was she was embarrassed. She was deeply embarrassed and humiliated that my mother married a black man. The curtain twitches of suburbia, they are so powerful, aren't they? And so people then feel they have to toe the line. And then and then people like me and thee, you know, we're able to be who we want to be because we make that decision and we, in a sense, we're reacting against it. You know, I'm definitely reacting against my grandmother's curtain twitching yeah. environment, which I knew very well. She knew us, you know, as children and, and actually as young adults when she died and when I was in my mid-twenties. But it's it's so interesting, isn't it, to look back on the past and to understand it better from a really mature viewpoint my paternal grandmother was a real curtain twitcher, a really, really mean woman. My father left when I was eight years old, which for me was no great loss at all. But my mum was seen as the social pariah. Although she was the one who was left, it was like the scandal of the school that I came from a broken home. It was like my home was fixed when he left. That was the day my home was fixed, not broken. But she had to deal with all of that as well. And I think, my God, she shouldered all of that. She was so ballsy and so brave. And I didn't really appreciate it until much later in life. And I'm glad that I have, and I've told her now. I've told her how much I value and appreciate that. It's sometimes, I think, maybe most people don't think of themselves as brave, even though other people looking at their situations might think that they are. Maybe, maybe in most cases, People have to be told that they're brave or have to be told that they have courage because it's not yeah. something we really apply to ourselves, is it? Um, you just get on with your life, don't you? You do, yes, absolutely. I mean, I certainly did. I was the kid who grew up being bullied a lot at school. I never really fought back. I was considered a coward, among other things. And I thought of myself as a coward, really. When I left my hometown and I moved to London, I had a few years of gay abandon before the AIDS crisis impacted on my life in a very personal, direct way, and friends began getting sick. I joined the AIDS activist group ACT UP, and I sometimes share photographs from that time on social media. And when I do, people often comment saying, oh, you were so brave, you were so heroic. I didn't feel brave or heroic at the time. I felt desperate and fearful and anxious. And it was out of that fear and that anxiety 
that I was driven to become an activist because I needed an outlet. So when people say, oh, you were so brave, I kind of think, well, was I? But it is a lack of fear because some people would have let the fear hold them back. Whereas, you know, you didn't. You didn't let fear hold you back, even though, you you know, you were probably scared in some of those situations. I've seen yeah. at least one or two of those pictures. And, and similarly, in my early 20s, I used to go on demonstrations. I, you know, I was... I was very gobby and I was very, um, I wouldn't say I was militant. That's a Daily Mail word anyway, isn't it? Militant, <laughs> militant feminists or whatever. But I was definitely very, very strong. And I still don't suffer fools gladly, actually. My close friends say to me, they say to me, oh, you don't suffer fools gladly. And I think, well, why should I? Why would anybody want to suffer a fool gladly? <laughs> but that quality of speaking up, speaking out, risking you know taking risks with that because you're not supposed to speak up and speak out and making a difference I think though those are qualities that we share and I still do it today even though I think people don't expect me to but I like to stir things up a bit when I see see it needs to be but also from my standpoint today I do feel that my role is not about going on demonstrations it's not about ranting on Twitter, which incidentally, I just can't stand anymore. Um, <laughs> even though I, I was a, a ranter at one stage, I just really can't stand it. I just think it's, it's such a... It's very draining. It's draining, but it's also a really cowardly way to deal with issues. But I feel that the way in which I can affect change now is through the establishment positions that I occupy. I'm definitely inside. I am. At, I do have a seat at the table and I am heard there, and I think that is really important now. And I'm sure some people think of that as selling out, but I'm not selling out. I think if you join the status quo and you just accept it for what it is, then perhaps you are selling out your politics. But if you join the, you know, the establishment, the mainstream, and you continue to advocate for inclusion and, and social change, then I think you're actually using your position wisely. One of the things you said about this podcast was about people who have inspired me. And I have to say, I'm a huge fan of Oprah Winfrey. She might be an obvious choice. And clearly she hasn't been doing the Oprah Winfrey show for like years now. But she, she managed to bring people together. And that's something I'm interested in now. How we can come together and ex explore and express who we are and listen to each other and move forwards as a people without the kind of arguing and binary positions and polarisation that's happening at the moment, because I think it's become really extreme. And unfortunately, on social media, as everybody knows now, there is no room for nuance. It's very easy to have an opinion, and loads of people have gotten opinions, but how do we bridge those gaps? That's what interests me at the moment. And Oprah Winfrey was somebody who did that for decades. You know, she got people to come to her shows and they were always like racially integrated and talk about some of these really taboo subjects that until she was really doing it weren't discussed at all and you know like child abuse is one of them that was yeah. something that she she took on and somehow her her reputation managed to stay intact she had a way about her still has that meant that I don't remember her being attacked maybe she was but it was like she became a revered figure and I felt that she was a force for good as a woman, as a black woman, as a woman from working class background, bringing 
people together. And I think that's really important. And that's, I think that's what I'm interested in now. I think what she contributed to the opening up of discussions around so many taboo topics was actually phenomenal and very ahead of its time. If you look at the other talk show hosts of that time, they were really obsessed with this kind of prurient, judgmental, damning approach. And there was never any of that with her. She was always very empathetic. That's right. If you think about Jerry Springer and the guy in Britain, can't remember his name, I think the show's off now. But it, they were very judgmental and very accusatory. And, and part of their the entertainment of the show was about shaming people and humiliating them. Whereas she was the opposite of that. I saw her in something recently and I'm trying to remember. And she was really good. Occasionally she's acting and it's almost like this woman can do anything. It's like, how can you go from being a journalist and a talk show host to being a really good convincing actor? It's quite astonishing. It's like she... She, she must have worked on herself so much that she's, you know, she doesn't see these boundaries that most of us are imprisoned by. Someone else I really admire and I think is incredibly courageous and I wish she was better known. She is an American and that's the actor Viola Davis. Oh my God. She wrote a, a memoir that was published, I think it was early this year, called Finding Me. And I read it, I listened to it on audiobook and it's the first actually it's the first audiobook I've ever listened to because I don't tend to read them or listen to I'm even using the word read I don't tend to listen <laughs> I don't tend to listen to them and she is such a good actor so it was really addictive hearing her read her memoir in her voice and she she really did come from nothing I mean she had the most traumatized impoverished childhood and, you know, at one point she talks about how she used to go to school smelling of pee and the other kids wouldn't want to play with her because her upbringing was so rough. And I know it's a rag to riches story and there is a cliche in that, but I'm always interested in those stories. And the same with Oprah, somebody who, you know, who is a very dark skinned, you know, um, very African featured black woman who had to overcome so many obstacles was so talented, clearly so talented, even at the beginning of her career. And until society started to change and she started to get the kind of roles that she should have got. So I think she's a really inspirational, courageous figure and a, a powerful role model in the world as an actor who doesn't fit the, the white beauty mould or the mixed race beauty mould that has prevailed for so long. So yeah, Viola Davis, people should read her memoir, Finding Me. So I'm, I'm so curious about your memoir because you've, you know, I know you've had an interesting life and I'm really curious to know what your early life was like. And you've also been part of the, you know, of public conversations around gay culture and so on, an activist, a serious activist, not just somebody who sends tweets, but somebody who actually is actively trying to advocate for more equality for gay people. And um, so I think, I think your memoir is going to be very important. Oh, thank you. That's really kind of you. I just read a piece about Viola Davis. She has a new film out. The Woman King. Yes. I I'll think it's The Woman, the Woman King. King. Yeah. yeah. Can't wait um, to see it. The piece talked about the obstacles that she's had to overcome. And you think, God, how much self-belief must you have to have to keep on going. It's true, it's true. She she does have that, and you see that in the book. But she's she hasn't written what we used to call a misery memoir, you know? She's very kind of clear-eyed about how she talks about her life and the challenges she's had. 
she isn't trying to get, she's not full of self-pity and she's not trying to get you to feel sorry for her. She's just saying, well, this, this was my journey to reaching this point. And I think that's, that's really commendable as well. That's her strength. She doesn't have to play on those very familiar tropes in order to write a book that is just so interesting and so fascinating. There are such regular reminders, the whole kerfuffle around the Little Mermaid cartoon, the ongoing attacks on Meghan Markle, which just drive me up the wall. You just think, for how long do we have to put up with this shit? You know? It is shit, isn't it? You know, the mermaid thing, I've... You know, when you see you see the headlines, but you haven't actually read any articles. I'm a bit like that with The Mermaid, so I get a sense of what it is, but I haven't really followed it. But Meghan Markle, I do admire Meghan Markle, right? And I do read certain newspapers. I flick through them every day because I don't want to be blindsided in the way that I was when Brexit happened. And suddenly people were like, how did this happen? Well, I now read those papers who were big advocates for Brexit and flick through, as I say, because it's, it's, they're very toxic. But I see in the case of Meghan Markle that every day she is being attacked by one journalist or another. There's usually one columnist who's attacking her. But this has gone on for years. It has gone on for years. And it can only be one thing, that she is a strong, outspoken black woman who decided to leave a country that, with the media in particular, were treating her appallingly. She left and then they're attacking her for daring to leave, as if she should, she should stay here and be victim to the most egregious journalism that you can ever see. And that they're attacking everything about her, everything. And to be honest, as far as I can see, 97% of it is completely baseless. It's, it's yeah. fabricated. And I find, that, I find that very disconcerting. So people have been brainwashed against her. And apparently on TikTok, she's one of the figures of hate. You know, there's, there are whole movements against her apparently on TikTok. But what she is, is she's a feminist. She's an independent woman. She is a, a professional person. And that's, that's too much for this country. And I feel, I really feel for her and her husband, actually. <laughs> and I say, good luck to them. I say good luck to them in America. I don't really follow much to do with the royals, but you couldn't escape it the stuff around her, it's everywhere. I actually watched one of the big interviews they gave and it just sounded horrendous. How could anyone expect them to do anything other than leave this country, given the, the situation they were put in? It's about towing the line, isn't it? And the whole idea around courage is the courage to not tow the line, the courage to be yourself, the courage to stand up for what you believe in. And there, it's often, there are often consequences to that because you can be vilified, you can be ostracised, you can be victimised and persecuted even. You know, there's, there's a spectrum of it, isn't there? But courage is an interesting, it's an interesting subject to discuss, isn't it? Because cause like I said, I think it's not something we think about usually, unless it's somebody in a war zone or somebody, you know, standing up for somebody in a physical fight, then we'll say, my God, that was brave of them. But there are so many little ways in which we as human beings are always being courageous or witnessing other people's courage and we don't necessarily verbalise it. It's not something that we talk about. Heroism or courage takes so many different forms and there are certain ones which the culture is very much obsessed with and focuses on. But then there's the smaller ones, there's the little small challenges that people need courage in order to face and deal with. And they can be as simple as just being 
publicly who you are if who you are is not part of the majority or the accepted majority mm. then that that takes courage quentin crisp had courage just to walk down the street looking the way he did knowing that that would create or would lead to rather the things that happened to him but it didn't stop him from doing it he was amazing that, though wasn't wait. he he yeah. was courageous and you think about that that was in the 30s wasn't it when he was dressing very flamboyantly and braving, braving all the sort of hostility that he did on the street. But I wonder if he'd have said he was courageous. No, he wouldn't have ever said that, Quentin. Did you ever meet him, by the way? <laughs> no, I didn't. I saw him, I went to his one-man show. I ushered at that show. Oh, did you? <laughs> yes, oh in, in the West End, about 1979. Oh, my God. That was the closest I got to him, though. I was set to interview him when he came over to the country the last time, and then he died in Manchester. I was all set to interview him and I was so excited about it because he'd been part of my life since I was very young. I was nine years old when The Naked Civil Servant was shown on British television for the first time. And I watched it with my stepfather. My mother was working the night shift at the hospital and I watched it with my stepdad. My stepdad is a builder, plumber, very working class. And we sat there watching this drama together. And I remember sitting there, age nine, going crimson oh. and at the end he actually said to me your mother's worried you might turn out like that and <gasps> I was so horrified oh. it terrified me the thought of being like that and of course the irony is that by the time I was 15 16 I was looking pretty much <laughs> like that by choice <laughs> yeah yeah I think I think because you're younger than me I think I was ushering an earlier show because I think he did those shows for decades, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was ushering at the West End when he he did the first one, I think, which was like 79 or something. And it was just, it was just packed out every night and he was just so entertaining. And that quote about the dirt. Do you remember yeah. the funny thing about dirt is if you don't dust or something, then it doesn't get any worse after the first after five the years. First four years. <laughs> something like that. You just have to hold your nerve. <laughs> hold your nerve, yeah. It's one of those famous lines of his that sounds so flippant, but when you think about it, it's actually quite profound. Is it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's a question of holding your nerve. That sums up his entire existence oh to me. Oh, gosh, yeah. It's all about holding your nerve. Yeah. And then society changes around you, doesn't it? Yeah. So by the late 70s, he had become a character, hadn't he? You know, because we know that that is how tokenism works in a way. So he yeah. was allowed to be a gay character. But in the 30s, he would have been imprisoned. Do you know what I mean? I don't think he was, was he? No. He stood trial in Bow Street Magistrates Court. He was accused of soliciting. And he famously said that, of course, he wasn't soliciting because why would anybody walk down the street looking as obvious as, as he did? <laughs> If they were trying to solicit anybody and he managed to win the case, he was Brilliant. acquitted. Brilliant. Yeah. Who else would you like to discuss as being one of your heroes? I'll tell you who's a hero of mine and it's quite a new hero. And that's Edward Enenfall, the editor of Vogue, because he took over in 2017 and that must have sent shockwaves through the fashion industry because he was the first person of colour to assume the editorship. He was also a bloke. And his predecessor, Alexandra Shulman, had, I think, featured six women of colour on the cover of Vogue in, in 300 issues, right? And her argument was always that 
uh, women of colour don't sell the magazine. And the people she had featured were, I think, Naomi Campbell a couple of times, Beyonce, Rihanna, maybe Michelle Obama, I don't know. But it was like... So so some people may not understand or or know that black women have been seen as ugly, as not beautiful, as not part of the pantheon of British or global even fashion, that we have been outsiders. And, you know, for, for a lot of black girls growing up in a white, majority white society, for a lot of girls, black girls growing up in a white society, it's very hard to find positive images, especially in the past, of black females. It's been a big issue. I mean, definitely from my childhood, which was so long ago. But but even today, you still hear it. I have a little, um, a couple of little um, cousins who are there. Both their parents are Nigerian origin, and they're very dark skinned. And they they because um, I'm mixed race, so they talk about my hair and they say, "Oh, you've got you've got pretty hair. We like your hair." And I say, "But your hair's lovely too." And they look at me, as if to say, "No, it's not." And, you know, this started to happen when they were about six or seven. They're now just a bit older. And it's really shocking to know that... It's heartbreaking. It's totally heartbreaking heartbreaking. that in the 21st century, at this stage, they still are made to feel that they're not good enough, that they're ugly. And so Edward Enifel took the position at Vogue and completely revolutionised the kinds of models and people that are featured in the magazine. Suddenly, every skin tone is featured in the magazine and that's an incredible thing and this is he's done this consistently now for the last five years and because Vogue is the fashion bible other publications fashion magazines and so on have followed and also the big brands so now the representation of women of color in fashion in advertising in beauty magazines in magazines has been completely overhauled and we are there and we are present and that is an incredible thing. And he was the one who really made a difference when he took the position at Vogue. And he's just published his memoir called A Visible Man. And it's um, it's really good. He's black, working class, queer, originally from Ghana, came to London and has worked in fashion most of his life. So he, he again comes from a really kind of working class background where the expectation was never that he was going to succeed as somebody who has become in this country the most powerful person in fashion, and which is what he is today. And his journey to this point is really interesting to read and it's a very honest memoir. And he, he takes you through from his childhood right through to now. And it's, it's great, it's a great book and I urge everybody to go out there and read it. And I, I have huge amount of respect for him. So yeah, so I think he's another hero of mine. I think fashion is so easily dismissed by people who aren't interested in fashion without thinking about what impact it has in terms of normalising what our expectations are. Absolutely. I think I think with Edward Enenfall, it isn't just about fashion, although what happens in those fashion houses filters down and influences what we all wear. And I think we often don't make that connection. We think of something completely distinct to the clothes we might buy in Zara or Primark or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but actually, no, they're completely interrelated. But he has broadened the definition of beauty in majority white countries in a way that I think has revolutionised it. And that, I think, is something that we all need to 
to acknowledge whether you're into fashion, whether you're into beauty or not. And actually, people who say they're not into beauty, come on, beauty is something, how we look, how we present, how we're treated according to how we look, regardless of colour, that is all very much the fabric of our everyday society. And it's something that you can't just easily dismiss. And I think, I think it took courage for him to do what he did when he took the helm. And now it has become normalised. Um, throughout, it seems to me, from what I can see, it's become normalised throughout the fashion and beauty industry for now. So we'll see what happens in the future. What an extraordinary moral lesson that is. To take that risk, or what was perceived as being a big risk, how gratifying <laughs> that he's proven right. Yeah, yeah, he's been proven right. And he's also very queer inclusive in the magazine. That's the other thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's not, actually, it's not just about the colour of your skin. It's also sexuality, gender, diff people who are differently abled, um, different classes. You know, he's really broadened it but also maintained what is a high fashion magazine. I think it's really interesting. I think our society is changing and it's, you know, obviously there are huge challenges around at the moment, but you know, you and I have been around a long time, right? I've been around, yeah. like I said, much longer than you, but we've seen those changes. And I'm always really surprised when young people say, oh, nothing's changed. It's the same as it always was. And I think you weren't there. You weren't there in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Even the noughties, you weren't there. So I think we have progressed. But, but we also have to keep fighting to make sure that those developments are sustained and that we don't regress, which, of course, is what happened in America with um, the Roe versus Wade ruling overturned, which is just probably one of the most shocking things that's happened in our society for a very long time. But, yeah, I, I think we have to acknowledge the changes that have happened and also also the people who have been part of that. And Edward Enenfall is part of that. And I know that in my own little way, I've been part of it. And I know that you have been part of it, Paul Burston. You know, all, all of us individuals in our own way, trying to make our society more egalitarian, fairer, more equal, so that we all can participate as, as full human beings and citizens, instead of being sidelined and marginalised and, and treated as less than and vilified and all those other things that, that also come along with, you know, the societies we've grown up in. Well, thank you, Bernie. Thank oh, you. That was, a little, that was a little speech at the end, wasn't it? Was it was beautiful. And thank you for taking part in this podcast. And thank you, first and foremost, for just being who you are, because you are inspirational. You truly thank are. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you yeah. are inspirational as well, Mr. Burston. <laughs> really so good much. to talk to you. My thanks to Bernie for being such a great guest. And to find out more about her and her work, please visit her website at www.beveristo.com. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. This is David Hodge, otherwise known as Dusty O, on We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. There's this exotically clad woman with a, a turban and a flowing robes and all jewellery and fully made up answers the door and going and she says, oh, I love living here. And I thought, why? It's always been my main objective to live my life the way I want to live it. And those people were candles in the wind for me, you know. There were things I could look up to, things I could aspire to. This is Louisa Young on We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. You know, I'm a posh blonde London girl with a lisp and I'm never going to be Johnny Cash. However, Johnny Cash has told me to be who I am.
So I just got to really work out what that is. Thanks, Johnny, because I might not have got off my arse. This has been We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>